Our main passage is indeed Luke chapter 15, so please have uh, your Bible open at that particular passage. Last Sunday morning I asked the question at the end of one year and the start of a new year, what might we consider? And I suggested that uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ was a very good theme for us to adopt. Without this, the church has no reason for being here. It's a very sobering thought as we look back. What does all our history amount to if there is no good news about Jesus Christ? Also, without the good news of Jesus Christ, we actually have no future. It could be a museum, it could be a sort of a cultural artifact, a place to visit where people might say, well, this is how people used to believe, but now we all know better. And the same could be said about us personally. On this matter hinges our life now and what happens after we die, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's good for us to be reminded and reinforced and refreshed in the gospel. How good is this gospel and how great is this message? Last Sunday... Uh, we looked at this particular text, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's written to Christian people, not perfect people, a great mix of people with all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of baggage. But uh, yet, this is a message which is proclaimed boldly, clearly to all these people. And it is said to them, you know something about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thought about the greatness of what happens to us when we become Christians. We have been taken from a place of poverty to riches. Of course, I don't speak here about money and wealth and estate and intellectual capability and prospects in terms of any kind of job and career and so forth all of which are important in God's eyes but they're not the fundamentals that make human beings tick and what really matters to us but I do speak of the matters for which Jesus Christ became a man and for which he died upon a cross and these are matters to do with the fact of our being in a non-friendly relationship with God, lacking comprehensive forgiveness in our lives and crippled by burdens of guilt and frustration because of that, having nothing that you could ever deem to be a lasting purpose so that you could say with confidence, this is going to go beyond my life. With a gnawing sense of suspicion that we have very little power to change ourselves. And worst of all, with no awareness that we are poor. Now Jesus Christ has made us very rich so that we put a line through all the nose and we say most positively that all these things become true of us. We become aware that we're spiritually poor and we have need. And how wonderful that we can call God our Father and be members of his family with brothers and sisters. That there is a comprehensive forgiveness so that we can say, whatever we have done, there is cleansing in the blood of Jesus Christ. 
and that God is able to pass that by because it's all been dealt with upon the cross that we have a lasting purpose we've actually discovered the reason by which, for which we were created which was to serve and to worship our creator we've come home and wonderful it is that we're not the same people as we were this time last year but by God's grace and by his power we are being changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ and that is the calling of every single believer now these are the riches which have come to us because of our great saviour and because he was so poor so the Bible says that we have been taken from darkness to light from death to life and in a most powerful phrase from the power of Satan to God and we read there are actually a couple of verses but the final verse in Luke chapter 15 puts this very graphically this brother of yours was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found well if you're a Christian this morning that's actually a description of you and what an enormous privilege that is and we hasten to quickly add this privilege is ours not because of any efforts on our own part but by the powerful working of the grace of God in our lives by the finished work of Jesus Christ well that's a great thing and um, well we, we move on this morning to think about something else can do to do with this salvation this salvation experience it's a very well known story there are three stories in fact all bound up into sort of one continuous um, message here there's a story here about a sheep verses 1 to 7 there's a story here about a coin verses 8 to 10 and the rest of the chapter concerns a son there are pictures of us and I'm sure that most of us we've read this passage before we've heard it preached on numerous times we've been encouraged to consider ourselves as the sheep that is lost as the coin that's been mislaid as the son who's gone astray and we're encouraged from that to sense that God has purposes of finding people like us we read these stories and think about what it means to us and that's absolutely natural these are pictures of us 98% now this was a, a statistic I heard this, this last week from someone who'd done a degree in psychology and this person said that 98% of the time we're thinking about ourselves I thought that can't be true they said well actually if you think about it probably is in some way or other because whatever we do we're kind of always reflecting back whatever is done upon ourselves in some fashion or other and as we look at this particular story there we are 98% of the time we're thinking about ourselves don't get bogged down with that thought don't come up to me afterwards and say well actually I think it's 85% so forth 
I'm just telling you what I've been told and it just sort of rang true and I thought to myself well we do spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves and uh, as Christians we spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves and when we talk about this matter of salvation we think of it immediately in terms of ourselves and that's well and good and that's quite natural and it's quite proper there are many places in the Bible where God encourages us to think about ourselves. I remember the, uh, that text in Isaiah where he says, come, let us reason together. He's coming to a people who are in need and he's saying, come, let's, let's have a conversation. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. He's saying, let's have, let's have a dialogue about this. I've got something to offer you, something to make it better for you in your life. And God does deal with us like in that fashion. He reasons with us and encourages us to think in self-interest terms. But I want to look at this passage this morning and think of it in terms of what salvation means to God. What does salvation mean to God? So I go back a, a few slides there. You can see that whilst this passage has much to, to say about the thing which is lost it also has something to say about the people who have lost something the man has lost a sheep the woman has lost a coin and the father has lost a son this has not happened in a vacuum something has been lost and someone has lost it and in fact when you begin to look at this passage with those sorts of spectacles you see that you really, you really can't understand this passage in its totality without understanding that there's a great amount of text here which has to do with the feelings and the work and the reaction of the people who have lost something. Firstly, something of value has been lost something of value has been lost repeat again a man loses his sheep this is not sentimental despite all the kind of pictures that were done in the Victorian era of the shepherd and this lost sheep and, and this kind of glow about this idea of the shepherd finding this lost sheep and the affection between the shepherd and the sheep I don't think we're to read this passage in that kind of way this is about work and livelihood. The sheep is valuable. The sheep has a value. The woman loses a coin. This is not sentimental. The coin actually matters. I think you'll find in a footnote to your Bible there, it will say that the coin is like a day's wages. Well, I don't know how much you're paid per hour, but a day's wages is quite a lot. If you had 10 coins and each of those represented a day's wages, then if you lose one of those, then that's quite a lot of money. So she's scrabbling around on the floor and trying to find this, this coin that is lost, not just because she's a perfectionist and likes to have everything neat and tidy, but because this is actually important it probably isn't to do with her day-to-day -day living, but it may be something to do with her savings, her investment, the provision that she's making for a future. 
I'm sure most of the people at the time lived from hand to mouth. So if they had any extra over, if it was there for their children, then all that was very precious. And to lose one of those was very important. But the father loses a son. Now that's very different. I'm interested to note that there are two sons in the story and the one who gets lost is the younger son. So we're not talking here about an inheritance because the prime inheritance will go to the older son. We're not talking here about the family line and that wasn't the issue that the father was so concerned about. You know, who would inherit the farm? Who would take on the family business? Who would take forward the family line? There's two sons here, it's not just one. And it's not a matter of livelihood. This son sounds like somebody who was actually a drain on the family resources rather than a benefit to it. In many ways, he was like the teenager who was ready to leave home. He'd be rather pleased if he'd pushed out the door. He wasn't a great blessing in that sense. But there was something that was lost when this second son left the home. And that was the relationship. And I think as we read these stories, we, we need to read them together and to recognize that something valuable has been lost. It has value in itself. But for God, there is something which isn't just a question of pounds, shillings and pence involved here, but it's something about a relationship. A relationship has been lost. This takes us back to the beginning of the Bible. We look in the book of Genesis and we see that God has lost something. In the garden, the man and the woman, they're made in the image of God and they have a relationship with him. And God loves to be spending time with them. He has plans for them. He has desires for them. He is interested in them. He wants to be with them. They have real value to him, a value that exceeds all the rest of the creation that he's made because they're made in his image in a way that they can relate to him and he to them. But the well-known story of the Bible says that that relationship has been broken. And we call that the fall, but it could be called the losing. The losing. course they lost something they lost something desperately big but God lost something as well secondly this matters to God I'm interested in the arithmetic quite deliberate why are there 99 other sheep is that the standard statistical size of of flocks in Israel at that time? I don't know. But one sheep has gone missing out of a hundred. That's quite a lot, isn't it? If you had a hundred sheep in this room, I don't think you'd recognize if one had gone missing. One out of ten coins. 
and one out of two sons it's interesting I think that in some kind of way all this is telling us that one person matters to God whether they're in a family group of a hundred or whether they're one out of two one person matters to God he notices one the Bible does deal in nations and family groups ethnicity and so forth but fundamentally God's concerns deal one by one by one person by person and this isn't just this sort of arrogance of ego this is the constant trend and drift of the Bible and we see that really in the way the Lord Jesus Christ relates to people when he's upon earth he speaks to the crowd but he speaks to the woman at the well he speaks to Zacchaeus up the tree he speaks to blind Bartimaeus he speaks one by one to his own disciples he knows them by name and he knows each one who's lost he knows each one of us we think we're one of a hundred or a thousand or a million 258,000 people live in Brighton and Hove we're one of 258,000 people 250 people work at my place of work I've lost one of 250 I have a staff number 34745 massive big number you come from a family there are others in your family the very minimum there's probably sort of two or three of you there might be many more you're just one of those but you see it doesn't really work like that in God's eyes in God's eyes you are the one you are the one and it matters very very much to God that you are lost it matters to him because he has lost you I want us to see in these pictures of the man and the woman and the father with which this audience would have been able to identify in some fashion and perhaps as one of the stories here that identifies with you especially but we see here the picture of God and especially God as father notice please notice God's single minded effort to recover what is lost so if you have your Bible please look at these these verses as shown on the screen verse 4 suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them pause suppose suppose put yourself in the in the shoes what does the shepherd do does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it how long will that take we don't know but this is what the shepherd does he puts aside if you like the normal day job he puts aside the 99 and he goes and searches for the one and he has to use all his ingenuity all his skill all his innate ability to find the one it isn't straightforward it isn't simple it's potentially dangerous 
That's the measure of the effort that the shepherd takes. And it's the measure of the effort that God as Father takes in looking out for each one of us. Or verse 8. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? It's a big job, isn't it? We're always losing things in my house. And I say to Katie, where do we put that? It's lost. It takes such a long time to find things that are lost. Sometimes I say, don't let's even worry about it. We'll just carry on our normal lives, and as we go about our life, we'll find the thing that is lost. But not so with this particular woman. Yes, she had appointments. She had to go to the clinic. She had shopping to do, and all the rest of it. But she is so consumed and disturbed and distressed by this lost coin that she drops everything. And at that particular point, she lights the lamp, and it makes it her business to go through the house room by room by room until she finds this tiny coin which I'm quite sure wasn't nice and glittery we saw The Hobbit on Friday great film not for everybody great film Desolation of Smog big dragon enormous glinting coins and treasure everywhere you couldn't mistake all the sort of glittery stuff but I don't think this coin was like that at all I think it was just dull, dull like an old English penny, somewhere buried away, somewhere hidden, not easy to find. She might well have gone through three rooms and not found it, had to go back to the first room again, and then eventually she finds it. Big effort, big effort. I'm thinking about this father actually it doesn't say that he sent servants into the far country he didn't put out a missing persons request to the local constabulary he didn't do that at all but we do read something about him in verse 20 while the son was still a long way off his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him he'd never forgotten his son he woke up in the morning he went to bed at night never forgotten his son and there is at least that indication there that he was on the lookout for the returning boy he was anticipating not so much physical energy here but certainly mental and emotional energy is being expended by the father towards this missing son we see of course how much it meant to him what a kind of uh, outpouring of gladness what a relief that's my son he pictured that day he thought about that time maybe he'd seen other figures on the horizon before and he'd been sort of falsely hopeful but not on that day that's my son as the sun came near and he recognized his shape and his form and the gait and the way he the way he did everything that's my son that's my son and you can see the explosion and the release of his emotional energy and thankfulness as his son returns I want to say to you that God 
is absolutely single-minded in his efforts to recover what is lost. It isn't a little thing for God that people are lost. It isn't a little thing for him that you might be lost this morning. No, as we reminded last week, there was this intense and loving and wise discussion within the Trinity of God that culminated in the coming of Jesus Christ to this earth from heaven, the laying aside of his riches and richness so that he might become so poor that he might recover that which was lost. We should never be tempted to feel that this is kind of a secondary matter at all. And we see here the spontaneous and unrestrained joy at recovery. Verses 5, 6, 7, 10, 22 to 24. It's a joy to be shared. Have any of you ever done something like this when you found something and you've actually called up your neighbors and friends and you said, I want to have a party to rejoice over this? I don't think I've ever done that. <laughs> I've had a little yes moment. <laughs> share it with my wife but it, it's kind of big isn't it it's really big in this case here this is a time to pause this is a time to stop <laughs> this is a time to really rejoice so look at these verses with me because they say the same thing but the fact that they're repeated tells us that we have to get a grip of what uh, God feels about lost people coming back to himself when he finds it he joyfully puts it on his shoulders joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says rejoice with me I found my lost sheep I tell you in the same way there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent don't quite know exactly what that means but I do believe it puts a priority upon the fact that God and the whole of heaven is convulsed with joyfulness over one person who becomes found who is recovered it's a massive thing it's almost as if heaven stops at that moment because of this great thing that has happened as a trumpet sounds. He was dead. He's alive. He was lost. He's found. Verse 10. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. It's almost as if she went around the street. I'm down the street, knocked on the door. And she said, Come on, I want, I want you to just come in. Just want you to come in. And when they were all there in that one place, she says that I've got something very, very special to tell you. Verses 22 to 24. Father said to his quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. 
it's pretty clear from the elder son's reaction that this isn't the natural temperament in a way of his father they didn't have parties every day it wasn't the way his father normally was but on this day something massive had happened something wonderful had happened and it's almost as if all the restraints and all the bounds and so forth no expense spared no expense spared we're going to have a massive party at this point spontaneous unrestrained joy at recovery a joy to be shared something lost has been regained something lost has been regained and I want you to look at these verses please turn them up in your Bibles our relationship with God has been regained that's what salvation does it was there once in Adam it was lost it's been found better and stronger now in Christ Jesus you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ our worship this is what Jesus said to the woman at the well what is God seeking John chapter 4 verse 23 worshippers worshipping the father in spirit and truth these are the kind of worshippers the father seeks the father is seeking people to worship him you don't have to be in any doubt about that today this morning you don't have to be any doubt about that what does the father want of you what does God the father want of you he wants your worship and this is what he recovers when people come to him through Jesus Christ he receives our love 1 John 4:19. some of you would find it very strange to think back a few years and to think that you would actually say I love God I love God that's a strange thing 1 John 4.19 tells us that we do love God we love because he first loved us we didn't love before but we do now we do now because we've been found by Jesus Christ and 1 Thessalonians 1.9 reminds us that uh, God receives our, our service our service 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God in another place uh, Paul speaks to Christians and he talks about the fact that you spent, you spent long enough time chasing after other things you spent long enough in your life serving other gods other idols that's the implication here we're serving something if we don't belong to God through Jesus Christ we're serving something else and this is what happens when lost people are found and this salvation is working in people's lives they turn from serving dead lifeless idols to serve the living and the true God so that's a list, it's a great list isn't it this is how it is from God's perspective 
So I, I offer these three thoughts in closing. How great is our God? How great is our God that he should have imagined this amazing salvation plan that a world of lost people should be recovered to him with such assurance, with such a knowledge that he knew that now I've got these people back. They're never, never, never going to leave me again. Every single one of those who have been found by Jesus Christ will be with him forever and he will never let them go that's for you and for me and it's for our comfort Romans 11 verses 33 to 36 feels like a punctuation point in the, in the midst of the reasoning that Paul has made concerning the salvation of God oh the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord who has been his counsellor who has ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever Amen and how wonderfully encouraging this is for us it must be encouraging that God welcomes sinners this was the whole reason for Luke 15 in the first place this particular passage is because the chief priests and the scribes came to him and he was mixing with sinners he was with sinners what's he doing there and he's saying that's exactly where God wants to be well I take that for us today to mean that uh, God is interested in every single one of us gives us great confidence as we live our lives today in this world which is sort of flooded and bloated with its own self sense of sophistication progress and ability it's blind to these matters and so forth that's, that's the hardest thing of all isn't it we get, live in a world where there's a sort of a blanket ignorance and a disbelief and a, a sort of laughing a, a ridicule of all these all these sorts of matters well that's sin that's sin whether believe, people believe in God or don't believe in God it's the same we're all under this sort of blanket condemnation in that way does God care about the people of Stanley Road and Viaduct Road and London Road and so forth you say well I'm, I'm, not, I'm really not too sure they don't seem to care about him very much but does God care about them? I mean, they haven't paid him any interest for years and years. They're living the whole of their lives in ignorance of him. And you go and put a leaflet through their door and they're not interested. It's just another bit of junk mail. Is God interested in them? Is God interested in them? The Bible says he's very interested in them. And this encourages us. It encourages us in our praying, in our work in our hope and our expectation and he doesn't leave us without evidence of that does he because year on year we see somebody coming out of their lostness and being found and we'd love to see more and a passage like this encourages us to have no doubt at all about the integrity and the sincerity and the seriousness of God's concern for lost people
And what a great salvation this is. A salvation that finds people who are genuinely lost. It isn't a game. It isn't hide and seek going on. It isn't just people playing a bit difficult to get. Oh, we saw earlier. People are dead in their sins. It's only the power of God that's going to make us alive. They're riddled with God's judgment. It's only the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers that will actually lift the burden of judgment. These are the wonderful things that God does. This is the greatness of salvation. What a great message. What a great message for 2014, as much as 1614. Unchanging message. Unchanging God. God still has many people whom he is intent on finding and bringing into his kingdom. So let us share in that work. Let us rejoice in it if we too have known that salvation. Let us be thankful to such a great God.